0: today
1: episode 296 of the bowery boys talking trash the story of new york's department of sanitation hey it's the bowery boys hey support for the bowery boys is provided by our listeners join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash bowery boys Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we're back in the studio together. Yes, we are. (laughs) Finally, Greg. Thank you so much for... Keeping the show rolling while I was gone on vacation, it was so fun to kind of check in from <laughs> Lake Erie and hear about Steve Brody and the progressive women um, who healed who New York. Thank you for those great well, shows.
2: Yeah, thank you. So I have to offer you trash <laughs> for this week's episode.
1: <laughs> we thought that we would wait until the hottest part of the summer to tackle <laughs> the subject. We've really been kind of letting the subject marinate.
2: <laughs> well, we're, today we're exploring the question of how trash has been collected and disposed of in history, and of course, how it works today.
1: So how does that work today? But also, what did New Yorkers do with their trash before there was a Department of Sanitation? Prepare yourself for that part of the story. <laughs> so in the first half of the show, we're going to be giving an overview, um, a rather compact history if you will <laughs> of garbage in new york but in the second half we're going to be joined by two sanitation experts robin nagel and maggie lee to talk about new york and our trash today this is going to be a party <laughs>
2: it definitely is <laughs> kind of trashy yeah
1: <laughs> we, d- we just have to get these all out i mean i, I refuse to do another <laughs> trash joke tom Let's i move refuse on. <laughs> to recycle these jokes <laughs> yeah. okay okay Um, Yes, we we will be joined by Robin Nagel, who is a, a clinical professor at NYU and the anthropologist in residence for New York City's Department of Sanitation. She's also the author of Picking Up on the Streets and Behind the Trucks with the Sanitation Workers of New York City. We'll also be joined by Maggie Lee, the records management officer in the sanitation
2: department and also serves as the deputy director for museum planning for the foundation
1: of New York's Strongest. So join us as we take out the trash and clean the streets and clear the snow with New York's strongest, the New York City Department of Sanitation.
2: All right, let's take a huge step back away from, from, the curb. from the dumpsters here, let us situate ourselves here in a world of trash, right? Almost 400 years of New York City history and New York City history trash. So what are we covering?
1: Well, today we're going to be primarily focused on New York and our trash, which is pretty much the history of the New York City Department of Sanitation. How it formed, how it changed, and how it operates today. And so specifically trash garbage not sewage
2: which is something else entirely right
1: right (laughs) this is about the trash that new yorkers have thrown out which today gets picked up by sanitation workers and how it's then disposed of those same sanitation workers as you mentioned also clear away the snow in the winter this isn't however a story about what happens when you flush the toilets Just to make that key distinction, because sewers and wastewater are managed by the city's Department of Environmental Protection, the DEP. They control the the city's water supply. I mean, it's confusing because for most of the city's history, trash and wastewater are intertwined, right? Yeah. Rewinding back to the early Dutch days of the story and for a long time afterwards, all of it, the trash and the human waste, was treated pretty much the same way. Which is to say just dumped out onto the streets or into the bodies of water.
2: Yeah, and so there lies, I guess, our first problem here, which is that water that you're dumping the trash and waste into also just happens to be the water that you're drinking and fishing out of, mm-hmm. right? So at the beginning, let's go back to the Dutch, Dutch days of New mm-hmm. Amsterdam. Were there any garbage laws at all?
1: Well, yeah, the first law during the Dutch days in the 1650s, actually forbade residents from throwing all kinds of filth, rubbish, quote, oyster shells, dead animals, etc., into the city streets or into the canals. And as our guest Robin Nagel points out in Picking Up in her book, New Amsterdam even established five specific dumping grounds. And I love this. She writes, quote, These included the strand of the East River near the City Hall along Pearl Street today, near the Gallows at Pearl Street and Whitehall, near Hendrick the Baker's at the northwest corner of Bridge and Broad Street, and near Daniel Litzko's, which was at Pearl Street near the wall. I imagine you could get some good dumpster diving in (laughs) down at the
2: Baker's, right? Some old pastries. so did the dutch actually use
1: these garbage dumps reliably according to nagel probably not um and there's some very obvious evidence that the dutch residents just kept dumping into the waterways especially into the east river if you consider that pearl street you know pearl street today was named for the oyster shells and i guess the occasional pearls that filled it back when it was the eastern shoreline of lower manhattan Today, of course, Pearl Street is four blocks from the shore. Mm -hmm. It now sits next to Water Street, Front Street, and South Street. So those blocks are sitting atop landfill, and much of that landfill started out long ago as garbage. Really old garbage. (laughs) And meanwhile, businesses were also creating all this filth, this trash, and they were throwing it into the water. Including Collect Pond, which we've discussed in uh, many other shows, which was just northeast of today's City Hall. That had been a great place to fish and to get fresh water, but in the 1670s, the British, which were in control of New York, tried to improve hygiene by forcing the industry to move outside to the other side of that big wall on Wall Street, and many of those industries relocated near the pond, and they would just dump their trash and their wastewater directly Directly into the pond, basically ruining it for human consumption. I mean, this sounds
2: absurd today and and like ecologically dangerous, but what else, what other choice did they
1: have? And it probably didn't seem terribly odd to the residents Mm -mm. who were also just kind of dumping their filth into the streets. Now,
2: we're talking just generally speaking garbage here, but we have to like unpack our own idea of garbage here. What is garbage
1: in the 18th century? Well, we're talking about, you know, everyday household garbage, um, like spoiled food, broken furniture. We're also talking about human, quote, night soil, which was emptied, you know, bedpans and bedroom buckets if you will do you want me to go any deeper no 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 we can um you can let the imagination roam at this point but there was the refuse in the street also included things like dead animals and horses and chickens and pigs that were in various states of decomposition there was tons of manure and other animal feces which actually was quite valuable Bon Appetit! (laughs) So what you're saying is it wasn't a bunch of pollen Spring bottled water bottles, right? (laughs) uh, No, there were no plastic water bottles. (laughs) And this was just left to fester?
2: No one was clearing this away?
1: Well, there were roaming pigs and hogs um, that felt that they had hit the jackpot out in the streets. (laughs) Uh, The the English actually did enact some street cleaning laws, um, and homeowners were expected to sweep up in front of their homes, but still the streets remained filthy. So this could not have possibly been healthy, especially as the
2: population started growing.
1: Right, into the 18th century and and becoming more crowded and becoming dirtier. New Yorkers began to suffer increasingly severe bouts of fever, yellow fever, even as the city was attempting to enact these new sanitation laws. But these streets and gutters and rivers continued to reek of sewage and trash and... All kinds of outbreaks continued unabated. But you did mention that there was some valuable manure here (laughs) in the streets, too. Yes. as, As Ted Steinberg wrote in his book, Gotham Unbound, The Ecological History of Greater New York, all waste, as it turns out, was not created equal. There was garbage, right, like we, mm-hmm. we mentioned. But then there was animal manure, which actually was quite valuable, you know, as fertilizer for farmers. The city had tried to contract out garbage collection in 1806. But the collectors, it turns out, the collectors only wanted the manure. They would pass a, you know, through the streets and just collect the manure because they could resell that to the farmers. Mm-hmm. And they'd leave the old trash. And if you think about by the mid-19th
2: century here— The primary form of transportation in the city is all Mm horse-drawn. So we're talking tens of thousands of tons of manure being deposited on the streets and then uh, kind of pushed to the sides, to the gutters,
1: right? Or scooped up for Mm -hmm. resale. Steinberg notes that, quote, New York had matured into a veritable manure factory. (laughs) I will say, though, that things would improve a little bit, you know, with the opening of the Croton Aqueduct in 1842. At least the city would be able to get fresh water into the city and and clean some of the streets. But obviously, of course, as we
2: go through the decade here with hundreds of thousands of people arriving into the city, the
1: garbage is piling up. There's even more garbage with the passing year obviously which is incredibly unsanitary and and creates these health outbreaks. There were some attempts at reform in the 1860s, you know, medical professionals were actually alarmed about how filthy the streets were and and the fact that New York was suffering diseases that had been basically under control since medieval times, they were coming back. But those uh, reforms were pretty short-lived. Even though the city was budgeting money for street cleanup, it simply wasn't adequate. You see these photos, you know, from the 1870s and 80s. It's even hard to make out the sidewalks in mm-hmm. the streets because they're just these mounds of these mounds of
2: stuff. And this was especially bad in poorer neighborhoods where they didn't have the money to clean this up. And people would then look at these immigrant communities as being themselves filthy or dirty because their streets were. But in fact, it was we had a very class stratified way of clearing garbage by the mid-19th century.
1: And wealthy residents could pay for private services to come clean it up. Um, but yes, the, the other... Crowded neighborhoods like those on the Lower East Side were, you know, at the mercy of city street cleaners who often didn't even venture into their neighborhoods.
2: But when some of this was able to be picked up and, like, loaded onto wagons, what did they actually do with it?
1: Many of them headed off to dumping piers over at the East River. Usually these piers, you know, you would dump the garbage off the piers onto a scow, like a large barge-like vessel, and then the garbage would get picked over often uh, by a, a flourishing industry of scavengers men and women and children who picked through potentially you know valuable bits in the trash
2: and these would be known yeah sometimes known as rag pickers bone grubbers these are just different slang names and then the rag and bone men although they'd be men and women rag and bone men would travel throughout the city selling the things that they had just
1: pulled out of the garbage right and then those scows would be floated off into the ocean. And then dumped mm-hmm. in- into the ocean. And this was legal. Not really, I mean, not officially. By, by the 1880s, you know, when the city's construction was booming, all these new giant office towers and residences going up, there was so much building debris that was getting dumped into the ocean and then floating back toward the shore that something had to be done about it. Laws were passed against it. New Jersey was complaining, you know, the ships were having a hard time pulling past Sandy Hook um, during low tide. According to Gotham Unbound, the federal government stepped in and set up two dumping sites that were a few miles out in the ocean, and yet that didn't even, you know, stop the illegal dumping. So by the
2: late 19th century, by the 1870s, if the city is budgeting money to clean the streets but they're not actually being cleaned, mm-hmm. what's going on? Something smells Something smells a little rotten here, I think. In the garbage?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, this, of course, also coincides with Tammany Hall's rise. 1870s, yep. And their control on City Hall, which would last, you know, for decades. Most of those street cleaning jobs that the city was paying for went, of course, unsurprisingly, to Tammany Hall supporters who weren't necessarily expected to show up and put in long days, you know, cleaning streets. Street cleaning jobs were considered to be the ultimate cushy handout jobs. The city would they would establish an official department, the Department of Street Cleaning, in 1881 to try to tackle all of this filth, but Tammany would just, you know, claim that the city was uncleanable. It was expanding and exploding with all these different kinds of people. It was just not like other cities. So this Department of Street Cleaning,
2: yeah, it was very ineffectual in its first decade, essentially. It was formed in 1881 to, quote, keep all of our streets, avenues, lanes, and alleys thoroughly clean and to remove all the new fallen snow from the principal thoroughfares. So technically, at least, New York street cleaners, you know, manned a broom during the spring or a shovel in the winter. And what they did is they worked with these horse-drawn carts and they had piling and loading gangs, essentially fill up the carts with whatever it was, garbage or snow. And, And don't forget the manure. And the manure. They need the shovels for manure and snow, usually sometimes mixed together. I should mention really quickly with snow removal that up until this point during bad storms, only certain thoroughfares were cleaned and others were never done unless, you know, individual private residents did it. And even with the street clean department, most of the time they didn't even begin cleaning the streets until a storm was completely over.
1: Oh, so, I mean, so they didn't the, get ahead of the storm.
2: No, which of course we know is the, pretty key to ke- keeping those streets like maintained, right? Now, a major street cleaning crisis occurred in March of 1888, the blizzard of 1888, which completely paralyzed the city. It tore down power lines, phone lines, created the biggest catastrophe that this brand new department had ever seen. And we have a whole podcast on that for more information.
1: That's 1888, but we know that, in, that the 1890s brought in you know, reformers. We just talked mm-hmm. about that in the tombs. Yeah. A new reform administration came in. Massive police
2: corruption investigations. Even the progressive era is during this period with stronger motivations to clean the city to stop the spread of disease and epidemic. So all of this buildup gives us the ultimate reform mayor. During the 1890s, from 1895 to 97, a man named William Strong.
1: Which is a great name for reformer.
2: <laughs> he, he, he
1: needed to make a very
2: strong point to say that he was going to clean up the city. And one illustration of this was that he was literally going to clean up the city. Like, this was going to be symbolic of what he was going to be doing with government and other ways. He was going to actually clean the streets and and straighten up the Department of Street Cleaning. So he turned and wanted to appoint a man of unblemished character for the job. So he turned to Theodore Roosevelt. A good choice. A good choice, but a, he, he turned down the job and oh. he would end up being the police commissioner. Where he cleaned up corruption in the police yeah, department. Yeah, so, you know. He's on the team. Uh, So then he turns to another individual named Colonel George Waring. Now, Waring was born in 1833 in Pound Ridge, New York. He was indeed a colonel. During the Civil War, he directed cavalry in Missouri and became a colonel during this period. After the war, he worked on urban and drainage and sewage projects throughout the United States. He had actually worked on Central Park as a young man. He worked on the water drainage.
1: So he was bringing a kind of military rigor to the Department of Street Cleaning? So here you have strong
2: and colonel wearing, Mm. and it's almost like a, a military job. In fact, the men that were hired for the new department of street cleaning would all be required to wear specific uniforms, all white uniforms, and they would be known as wearing white
1: angels, the white wings. Sometimes the critics would call them the white ducks. Wait, Hold on. The why were sanitation workers decked out in all white. That seems kind of counterintuitive. I mean, it's- Wouldn't they it, get dirty?
2: Well, yeah, it's well, it's also unusual because you, you don't have a lot of people just wearing all white back then for many obvious reasons outside of the medical industry, right? So, but that was one of the points. It was symbolic. They wanted to have a kind of like a purity with the men that worked for this department. And then on a practical level, it also helped because one of the main- f- Factors is he wanted these men to be kind of morally strict. Mm -hmm. He didn't want them to be going to the saloons. So if they were wearing... During their shift. During their shift. So if they were wearing a very, like, a very noticeable uniform, then they were unlikely to do that.
1: They would stand out at McGurk Suicide Hall. (laughs) Oh,
2: certainly. And they would actually wear these white uniforms up until the 1930s. So this phalanx, this battalion of street cleaners, it was almost 200 men called soldiers of the public. And they even had parades. Like, they were literally going to uh, to war with the garbage. Well, they
1: were also being celebrated,
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially
1: if they managed to finally tame the streets. Mm -hmm. There's
2: a wonderful Thomas Edison film from 1903 that you can watch of the men walking to the streets. Another thing that Waring brought to New York City, he introduced the modern concept of recycling.
1: Really? Yeah. That was ahead of his time. In the 1890s, during the Gilded Age. Wait, how did 19th century
2: recycling work. Because there was no plastic or anything like that. Right. So there were three receptacles. One of them was for ash. Okay. Okay. The byproduct of incineration. Yes. That was taken to Rikers Island and then dumped. Then you had, I guess we call it dry garbage they would take that to dumps people would be assigned to go through it some of the rag pickers if you will mm-hmm. some rubbish. of the yeah, some of the scavengers before that would be disposed of then you had the i guess we can call it organic rubbish <laughs> if you want and that would all be taken out to a place called barren island in Jamaica Bay. And this organic rubbish, so it's usually, you know, dead animals, this type of or thing. Or spoiled
1: food, Spoiled maybe? food,
2: every, all of it, yes, would be boiled down and then rendered into oil and fertilizer.
1: Dead animals and such were being boiled down and rendered into oils Oil. and we, fertilizer yeah, and yeah. Such. so many in fact that
2: the waters off of barren island would be given kind of a grim nickname dead horse bay and the smell would be so bad that the this pungent smell would waft over to the rockaways on hot days spoiling a good summer day on the beach
1: and then there's also the garbage that still was getting floated out to sea and dumped yeah that was still that was still happening under this current
2: system. but his efforts really did make the city a cleaner, safer place. This was a vital component of what would be called the city beautiful movement that was happening throughout the country. Uh, Now, this was more of an architectural idea, of course, to create brand new buildings, but Warring allowed for a kind of cleaner space for these buildings to be constructed in.
1: Well, now you could also see the beautiful buildings. Yeah,
2: that's true. By 1898, with the consolidation of greater New York, this program would soon spread to all of the boroughs.
1: And how long did Waring stay in charge of the city sanitation department? Well, sadly, he actually died that year
2: in 1898. Uh, He died of yellow fever.
1: But his legacy continued on in the Department of Sanitation. Well, I mean, yes and no.
2: His legacy, you know, many of the programs that he installed into the this department kept going, but they really deteriorated under other leaders. And so, in a way, almost by the 1920s, it was reverting almost back to a pre-wearing stage of New York, and things were getting a little bit dirtier again.
1: Well, in the 1920s, the city was looking for new ways to deal with the trash. And the answer increasingly became to burn it up. And you had mentioned, you know, this ash that was being created. Well, incineration by the 1920s and 30s really took off. Many apartment buildings had their own incinerators down in the basements. Residents would throw their rubbish, okay, you'd kind of separate what could be burned, down a chute that went to the basement where it would eventually go up and smoke. And then not everybody had their own private incinerators. So you could also bring your rubbish, or sanitation could take your rubbish, to ash dumps, which which would burn it for you. Well, it just sounds... Sounds so lovely, doesn't it? <laughs> Actually, there wasn't much to see. Literally, it was very difficult to make out anything uh, through all the the burning and belching Ugh. ashes in the How air. very post-apocalyptic. One of the largest of these ash dumps, which we mentioned in our recent World's Fair of 1939 episode, was called the Corona Ash Dump in Queens, which was operated by the Brooklyn Ash Removal Company. F. Scott Fitzgerald even described it in The Great Gatsby, which came out in 1925. He described it as a valley of ashes, quote, a fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens. And it The ashes
2: there, I mean, it grew so large, it became a mountain. They called it Mount Corona, right? It grew (laughs) to be 90
1: feet tall. Robert Moses, as we discussed in that show, would construct the World's Fair and Flushing Meadows Corona Park literally atop this old ash dump.
2: And this was an idea that he would attempt to do many times in the city, this clearance of ash dumps and garbage areas into landfills for more pleasant purposes.
1: Yes, and the city operated Lots of other incinerators, you know, in other parts of town. Some were private, like the Corona ash dump, but the city ran many too, you know, including a huge facility that was located nearby, as you mentioned, on Rikers Island. Years before, we should mention, years before, um, you know, any prisons opened on Rikers, there were mountains of garbage and there were incinerators that were burning through the night on the island. And in fact... Rikers Island had been expanded through landfill, ash, you know, that had been hauled in by prisoners who were incarcerated nearby on Welfare Island, today's Roosevelt Island.
2: How many incinerators were going on at the same time? I kind of, this doesn't sound very ecologically beneficial to the city.
1: The city run incinerator scene peaked in 1937 when the city was running 21 different plants, Mm. but their use drastically decreased during. World War II and after the war, by which time, you know, only about half of that number would operate.
2: And by this time, was the city still just dumping some of this garbage directly into the ocean?
1: Oh, yeah. Even though there were laws that were regularly being passed that were forbidding the city from dumping out in the ocean, it still was taking place much to the consternation of New York's neighbors, especially those who were trying to operate beaches. Mm -hmm. According to... Ted Steinberg in Gotham Unbound: The bulk of quote fast decomposing items such as food was dealt with by dumping at sea. And in 1922, the city had purchased 12 garbage scows to supplement the seven it already had to keep up with the demand. But the problem, aside from the you know trash polluting the water, was that all of this garbage mm-hmm. was also washing back up on the shore, often onto the beaches. And it wasn't really clear to the city if that was the fault of passing passenger ships, you know, that were (laughs) coming into New York Harbor and throwing out all their garbage, or if it was because of the city's garbage supplies that was being dumped. Or just a beautiful mix of the two. (laughs) Probably. Probably. An article from July 24th, 1923 in the New York Times pretty much sums up the scene. Quote, Reports from the Rockaways to Long Beach show beach conditions to be worse this year than ever before. In places, the remnants of garbage are piled a foot thick at the high water mark, and it is no uncommon thing to bump into melon rinds and grapefruit while bathing. On the beaches may be found the remains of chickens, cats, and dogs, which, added to the putrefying vegetable refuse, attract flies, pollute the air, and are a menace to public health. <laughs> Even if there is not yet actual danger to health from bathing, the quantities of materials thrown up on the beach to rot are revolting and serve to make unattractive the greatest holiday playgrounds within easy reach of the city. Um, unbelievably
2: i will be able to one-up that horrible beach story here in just a few minutes with another scary anecdote so oh, just the suspense to-
1: <laughs> well finally the courts ruled against the city forbidding it from dumping at sea and gave it until 1934 to come up with another place to dump this garbage why couldn't they just
2: send it over to Rikers as they had been doing for decades?
1: Well, it wasn't that easy because by this time, Rikers dump, you know, was running out of space, but it was also it had also come under the scowl of Robert Moses, who was developing a spotless and futuristic world's fair very mm, nearby. Yeah. And he didn't want a growing pile of garbage in mm-hmm. the background of his futuristic vision of the world. <laughs> That's not the world of tomorrow. No. But... That was the meals of yesteryear. <laughs> so so the city was literally looking for a new place to put its
2: garbage. The situation was pretty much frozen throughout World War II here in New York City. The existing garbage dumps were filling to capacity. In fact, there was a new trash dump, Edgemere Landfill, which had opened in 1938, and that one would have... Would be open for many, many decades, but it was almost the only landfill that had any space left. And the city was, of course, just getting
1: bigger. There was this problem was not going away. And and what exactly were these dumps like? I mean, could you see the individual pieces of trash? (laughs) Well, I mean, you could. uh,
2: Had we been in space at that point, you might have been able to even see some of the largest ones. But more importantly. The neighborhoods that were surrounding these these landfills, they were getting so large that you could smell them and see them, and property values were going down in neighborhoods that were just developing for the very first time, especially here in Queens, uh, which was growing in very large ways in the post-war era. Many of these landfills were along waterfronts. These dumps, these these landfills were conflicting with Robert Moses's other plans, which were to develop beaches and parks in places like Queens. For instance, Starrett City mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, this huge housing development, for decades was situated next to two massive garbage dumps. So we were reaching a point of crisis where human beings were living too close to garbage, and it was making the city on its edges an
1: extremely like unpleasant place to live. And Moses did ostensibly want to make New York a better place, a more attractive place to live. Yeah. I mean, he, he was like
2: authentically, he wanted to make it a more livable, more desirable place. So he looks out at Staten Island and Staten Island is also growing, but there are huge areas that because of marshland are sparsely populated. During this period, including the west central part of the island facing into the Arthur Kill, which was the body of water separating Staten Island from New Jersey. Very swampy land and not being used for much. Moses's plan was to turn this swamp land into a temporary dump for just three years. Um, Okay, And then would transform it later into acres of parks and public works with, you know, hundreds of acres of private residential development and then
1: like a thriving industrial zone. Well, I suppose that sounds kind of promising.
2: But it would turn out, of course, to not be so temporary.
1: And why did the people of Staten Island agree to, to hosting this quote unquote temporary dump? They didn't agree. In large numbers, they
2: they hated this at this dump, which would become known as the Fresh Kills Landfill. Fresh Kills would be on the lips of Staten Islanders for decades, those who wished to secede. It was one of the main reasons that they wanted to secede as a secede from New York City. In fact, this New York City's own public works commissioner named Cornelius Hall was actually quite against this idea. But then this is where I see the magic of Robert Moses' growing influence at the period. Cornelius Hall, who had opposed the idea as a public works commissioner, became Staten Island's borough president. And then all of a sudden, he was for the construction of the landfill in exchange for Robert Moses constructing an expressway, which would be called the West Shore Expressway, wrapping along the western edge of Staten Island. So that was sort of the trade-off.
1: So Moses sweetened the deal and proposed an expressway. Which is what he did. He built expressways. He built express- yes. In exchange for putting the city's garbage on Staten Island. Yes.
2: So so all of the city's garbage would eventually go to this one place. They began dumping trash here on the western side of Staten Island in 1948 and essentially in layers. So this was not just the garbage, but it was the ash. So that what they would do is a layer of garbage and then a layer of ash and then a layer of garbage and then a layer of dirt. Like a fancy cake. (laughs)
1: Yes. Now nobody wants to eat.
2: Yeah. Now, clearly, they blew by this three-year... Development plan. And by 1955, so just a few years after they had even come up with the idea, it had become the biggest landfill in the entire world, covering 2,200 acres of land. To put it in another way, Tom, Disneyland is one. Hundred acres. So Fresh Kills landfill was
1: the size of 22 Disneylands, back-to-back. But not 22 times the amount of fun. (laughs) Um, And that was by the mid-50s. 1955. But Fresh Kills would continue to operate for decades. Oh, yeah. In
2: 1970s, the sanitation commissioner described the site this way, quote, It had a certain nightmare quality. I can still recall looking down on the operation from a control tower and thinking that fresh kills like Jamaica Bay had for thousands of years been a magnificent, teeming, literally life-enhancing tidal marsh. And in just 25 years, it was gone, buried under millions of tons of New York City's refuse. Now, by that year, by 1970, where that quote was from, there had been other major changes to New York City sanitation. For instance, in 1957, the city authorized businesses in New York to hire private contractors to get rid of their own garbage. And this is the moment where you see the city like, relinquishing some of that responsibility to private garbage disposal companies. But were incinerators still operating in the city? Until the 1960s, there was a series of federal laws, the Clean Air Act in 1963 and many amendments and additions later, that basically required urban areas to really clean up their act. And and one of the ways to do that was to get rid of all city incinerators. Did it clean up the air? Well, I mean, it would eventually. It's it's weird to think of the 1970s as like, you know, this isn't exactly an, an era I think of in terms of having great air quality in New York City. But it was because of efforts like Mayor John Lindsay getting behind environmental issues, the introduction of Earth Day. Um, mm-hmm. These types of things would, in the long run, have a significant effect.
1: Although if you can't burn the trash anymore by incineration it seems like there'd be more garbage that has to head out to Fresh Kills.
2: Yes. Now, here's something that is a little bit of foreshadowing. But in 1978, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that it is not a violation of the Interstate Commerce Clause to transport waste to another state. But
1: Fresh Kills was still getting all of New York's trash?
2: Yeah, it was It was still extremely active. Not only making life miserable for most residents of Staten Island, but was actually making life horrible for the whole geographical region, New York and surrounding states. In the summer of 1987, Tom, bathers on local beaches throughout the region, as far away as Connecticut, were met with heaving seawater filled with medical waste and other types of garbage that washed up sh- on the shores in a very specific phenomenon that the press called the syringe tide. A tide of syringes and medical waste. Use your imagination.
1: But was this coming from waste that had been dumped at sea? At, no, it was discovered to have all come from fresh kills
2: and had been like washed into the Arthur kill and then distributed throughout the region. By the late 1990s, the only remaining New York City landfill in operation was Fresh Kill. It had been such a contentious point between Staten Island and the rest of the city that they did, in fact, vote to secede from New York City. I mean, this could have really been a huge deal, but it was at that point that the mayor of the time, Rudy Giuliani, made a deal with Staten Island that they would officially close the Fresh Kill's landfill. By 2001, Fresh Kills was finally closed. So what was New York supposed to do? Where were we supposed to ship our garbage? Right. There were no places by this point in the five boroughs. There were no garbage dumps or landfills of any kind. I should add, though, that Fresh Kills was reopened following September 11th, 2001, and it was the repository for a lot of the debris and was even a federal crime scene. It's at this time that New York began sending its garbage and its waste to transfer stations in Queens and the Bronx. And from there, it was exported to other places. Well, we'll sort through all those details after this. On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's
1: Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and
0: ad-free, right now on Wondery+. today.
1: Well, we are delighted to be joined by two sanitation department professionals, Robin Nagel and Maggie Lee. Robin is a clinical professor at NYU and the anthropologist-in-residence for New York City's Department of Sanitation and the author of Picking Up on the Streets and Behind the Trucks with the Sanitation Workers of New York City. Robin's TED Talk, What I Discovered in New York City Trash, has been viewed more than 1.7 million times.
2: (laughs) And everyone should actually, we're going to post that on our website because everyone should, should actually watch it. And Maggie Lee here, thanks for joining us, is the Records Management Officer in the Sanitation Department and also serves as the Deputy Director for Museum Planning for the Foundation of New York's Strongest. She's helped organize What Is Here Is Open, selections from the Treasures in the Trash Collection, which is an art show centered around pieces that were thrown out with the trash, which is currently running at the Hunter East Harlem Gallery at 119th Street and 3rd Avenue through
1: September 14th. Welcome to you both, and thank you for being on the Bowery Boys.
3: Thanks for having us. Thanks
4: for having us.
1: First of all, Robin, you address pretty quickly in the book, picking up, but I'd like to ask you here, why... Is sanitation so important to New York? Why should New Yorkers care about what happens to their trash?
3: Well, if you do a short thought experiment, imagine the city without organized, consistent, efficient trash collection, where would it all go? We would no longer be able to consider New York the glittering global capital that we we think ourselves to be. And we would also be dying of diseases that are completely preventable, but only if you have the public health protection of efficient sanitation work happening every day. Mm
1: -hmm. And did you know that going into this? How did you become so interested in sanitation?
3: I've always been fascinated by this simple problem of how is it that we are so content with letting go of Things we don't want anymore, which is a very roundabout way of saying why is it so easy to create trash? Mm-hmm. How is it that we live with a culture profoundly built on disposal? But of course, there's no away in the throw away. It's an emphatic verb, we throw it, but the away is fiction. So from when I was a kid, I was just very curious about where it all went. And when I was hiking with my dad once, when I was Uh, about 10 or 12, and we were in the Adirondacks in this pristine wilderness where campers before us had left behind essentially a little dump, stuff that they were too lazy, I guess, to take out with them Mm -hmm. that they had brought in. And my question of the moment was, who on earth did they think was going to clean up after them? So I call that the once upon a time story, because (laughs) from that moment forward, that's what I was looking at. Who's cleaning up after me and you and us, wherever and however you define the us, who's doing that work and how is it organized and where does it go? And couldn't we do it better? I don't mean better from curbside. I mean, couldn't we create a material world that didn't rely on discard?
1: So you have this once upon a time moment yeah. in the Adirondacks with your with your dad yeah. and the dump. How did that take you into a career in sanitation?
3: Very long story, and I'll give you the tiny short version <laughs> Um, While I was still working on my undergraduate degree, I met Meryl Ukeles, who was then and is still the artist-in-residence for sanitation, and it was the first time I had seen a woman of considerable intellectual power and creativity talking very seriously about focusing on garbage. When I talked to my colleagues in school, they were they thought it was cute and quirky and, oh, Robin, aren't you weird? Ha ha ha. But then Merrill showed me that, no, this can be a serious, serious set of questions. And then after I finished my graduate degree and was working at NYU, I was invited to develop my dream class. Like, if you could teach anything you wanted, what would it be? And I said, well, that's easy. I want to teach about garbage. And that was the beginning. Um, and it grew from there. I eventually... Started research with the department sort of in classic anthropological fashion Mm -hmm. and then realized observing and participating wasn't enough. I actually had to be a sanitation worker to understand the job in enough detail. So I went through the whole process of being hired. And let me just be very clear. It wasn't that anybody did me any favors. That's impossible. Basically, the civil service system is pretty rigorous, so I went through all the steps, same as you would, same as you should, in fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe,
1: Greg. I've been waiting to tell you this, but I, I'll, I'll tell you after the okay. show. Um, but and uh, you chronicle that whole journey in the book. Yeah. Uh, in in picking up the decision to go forward with it, and then what that entailed mm-hmm. the the exam, yeah, and then the various tests that you yes, had to take? Lord. The driving
3: exam? That was the best. I, I will say on my resume, I still, of course, include the time that I was a sanitation worker for the city of New York, and it is one of my proudest proudest lines on the resume. Driving the truck, there's nothing as powerful as you. It doesn't mean you're the biggest truck on the road, but nobody wants to be anywhere near mm-hmm. you. <laughs> Nobody's going to play chicken with you. If you need to take the lane, you know, you signal and you, you move over slowly. You, you're not aggressive, but you're going to take the lane. Yeah, I love driving the truck.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you also dro- drove one of those brushers or one oh, the circular.
3: One of them brushers is One called... of them brushers. <laughs> <laughs> right, the... There's a
1: whole glossary in the back of the book of sanitation terms. So
3: you're referring to the mechanical broom. Thank you. Which is the uh, mechanical street sweeper. Yes, it doesn't work perfectly. Yes, sometimes it seems to kick up more litter than it collects. However, <laughs> it is a bit of a holy grail inventing the perfect mechanical broom. Yeah. And what we have on the streets now is it's as good as it gets so far. That doesn't mean <laughs> it won't get better, but they're pretty efficient.
2: So I'd like to present a snapshot uh, for people of what we are presently dealing with today. How much trash does the New York Department of Sanitation collect and dispose of? And how, is it, how does the city divide it up? You want the nuts and bolts of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just want to see, like, what like, what are we looking at here?
4: So I can tell you today, um, we collect over 10,500 tons of residential and institutional waste every day, and nearly 2,000 tons of recyclables, so metal, glass, plastic, paper, and organics. Um, we also sort of, additionally to that, we clean 6,300 miles of streets of both litter and snow when it's snow season.
1: So that's almost 11,000 tons of garbage.
3: <laughs> yes. Every day. And but, every
1: day. Right. But, every but,
2: day. But keep in mind,
3: that's only roughly a third of the city's total. That's only residential and institutional trash. That's not commercial waste, and it's not what's called C&D, construction and demolition debris, which each of which are about another third for right. the total quantity. So multiply Maggie's numbers by three.
1: It's an incredible amount of garbage. And when you say that that's collected every day, is every street picked up every day? Is garbage on every street picked up? Or there's there's a whole system in play. There's a whole map, and you go into this in the book, of the different ways that the city is divided into different garages and districts.
3: It's actually very simple. District boundaries are the same as community board boundaries. Oh. They okay. are what's called coterminous. Okay.
1: okay. So there's a garage in every community board. Correct. Um, of
3: which there are 59 in the city.
1: So each of those... So 59 garages... That are responsible for the the garbage, the residential and institutional pickup in its district, in that district. So they don't all get picked up every day? No. Not every day. Okay. Sometimes I just, like on the Lower East Side in my old apartment, I had the sense that the garbage was coming by daily.
3: Well, there will be commercial trucks picking up for businesses every day. But sanitation will, and Maggie, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I think it's three times a week for high density neighborhoods, twice a week for lower density and then recycling collection is once a week. That seems right. I That's, don't
2: I don't know offhand, but <laughs> No, that sounds like um, it's, that it's, sounds it's twice right. a week on my street and, and recycling is Monday leave it out Monday night. But, so that and, sounds right.
1: So I I once had a friend spend the night on my sofa and he just said in the morning, he said, It seemed like there was another garbage truck that
3: went by every hour. That might have been true for the commercials.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. The commercial waste owners tend to work through the night mm-hmm. and they have they can have very chaotic routes. So you could very, very realistically have a lot of people coming by. So
1: the, the restaurant, one restaurant might have hired somebody mm-hmm. in a bar is working with somebody else. Correct, and exactly. Uh-huh.
4: Which I can't speak a ton to this, but my colleague's working on commercial waste zoning and they're going to kind of try to put a cap on that and have zones where people can work in and make more efficient routes. And that's a whole other fascinating thing that
2: I can't <laughs> speak to a ton. <laughs> um, so let's talk specifically about that one-third Right, that one-third that the Department of Sanitation does handle. Where does it go? What's, what's the journey from being picked up from the curb? like Where does it go? Where does it eventually end up? It what goes
1: do- back to the garage.
3: No, not necessarily. If you load out your truck, you'll take it straight to the dump. If you have come close to loading out your truck, but your shift is over, then it will go back to the garage. Right. And in some garages, you will load out your truck, go to the dump, empty it, come back, do more... And then, so that's called a load and a piece. Wow.
1: And just logistically, um, when you're picking up, and you have a very humorous section, Robin, in the book about the right way to lift up garbage bags or even the garbage cans and even outdated manuals showing illustrations of people. I think it's like lifting them using their head yeah. to sort of like hoist the garbage <laughs> can um, into the back of the truck. <laughs> what... <laughs> Today those garbage trucks also work as compactors. Oh yeah. And so they're they're grinding it down already.
3: Well, squashing it anyway. Mm-hmm.
1: Crunching it down. Yeah.
3: And then the the proper phrase. This is a technical term. When you take the the truck to dump it, and you um, activate, the, it's called the back blade, which is near the cab, in the body of the truck, and it pushes this compacted garbage out. If it comes out, basically in a well formed hole, it's called a turd. <laughs> And in, in We the... were
1: talking about manure earlier. Yeah, we well, were. Yeah. In the mechanics
3: of truck design, you want to design trucks that produce a good turd.
1: Okay. Do New York City's sanitation trucks produce good turds? Given the
3: right conditions? Yes. They produce <laughs> excellent. <laughs> Enough
2: fiber?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well let's
2: get a little serious here to get serious here. this is a extremely dangerous job, and the the challenges that sanitation workers have to deal with like every single day and night uh because you don't know what's in the on the curb you don't know what's is it broken glass is it needles i mean you don't know what it is it's
3: all of that and more it, it, there are three sources of danger the as you say, the contents of the garbage the mechanics of the truck are their own source of harm, and the uh, working in and out of traffic. Mm -hmm. People are impatient getting stuck behind a garbage truck and will scoot past rather faster than they should. What people don't know, and this is something that if your listeners remember nothing else from this podcast, I hope they hold on to this. Sanitation and refuse work is regularly listed among the 10 most dangerous occupations in the nation— by the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics. The number fluctuates, sometimes it's number seven, sometimes it's number four, but this is more dangerous than being a cop or a firefighter by many factors, both for injury and for fatality on the job. I say that meaning absolutely no disrespect to our cousins in police and fire. I wish that we could share the love of respect and concern and care for sanitation workers when they are injured, and God forbid when they're killed on the job, You'll see very little of it in the press, unlike for Police and Fire when it's front page on the paper. And
1: so, um, why do you think that is? Well- What's going on
3: here? We count on this workforce to do a relatively mundane and tedious job that happens regularly. We were saying twice a week, three times a week. However, often a truck comes down your block to pick up your discards. You can count on it kind of like you count on the sun rising mm-hmm. and- Therefore, you can take it for granted. They're not rushing into a catastrophic emergency. They are preventing a catastrophic emergency from coming into existence. So to have a preventive, an emergency prevention effort, which is fundamental to sanitation's mission, of course we get to ignore it. Also, again, sort of anthropologically, who teaches us to pay attention to the plastic cup? Um, Tom, you're holding your water is in a plastic cup right now. I promise you, I predict you're not going to take this home, put it on the mantelpiece and designate it the heritage plastic water cup that... You will pass on to your heirs, and they to theirs, unto the generations. Right? right. We Robin don't. Robin is
1: so calling me out. You know? <laughs> yeah. Guilt trip. If, if, I will if, say though that <laughs> that used to have an nice coffee in it. Yeah, and, but... and I threw out the ice cubes beca- <laughs> and and I filled it with water here in the studio.
3: I'm guilting you. You're, not gonna... You're so guilty. <laughs> no.
1: I will tell you, reading. I was reading your book while I was eating a a, a salad. You know, at one of those fast casual. <laughs> I can't say the name of it, but salad places, you know, where they dice it up into small pieces. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there and it's in a kind of like preformed shell, yeah. plastic shell. Uh, yeah. What do you call this? Clamshell shell uh, containers. And I'm reading this book about just how we generate all of this garbage. And I'm eating a salad. And then I'm thinking, I've only had this for five minutes. I'm done with my salad. And now what am I? I'm going to so, throw this. I don't even think this can be recycled.
3: Le- let me unguilt you. Please. And I'm not going to get into the logistics of plastics recycling because it's really downcycling and the chemistry and the that's a whole other thing. But what was your choice for lunch? Yes, you could have brought your own. Yes, you could have chosen to get glass or metal containers. And many people do that. But you're going against a very strong cultural trend which says, I need my food. I need it now. This is quick. It's healthy. All right. It's in plastic. Whatever. I need my food now. We are – for you to do something different would be commendable. But – it also would not save the planet because it's a tiny, in, in fact, in the scale of things, a microscopic drop in the larger picture of waste in the scale that it is generated in the United States and globally. So I will tell you, you can feel guilty if you now want Now I feel to. terrible. No, no, no. <laughs> <Is> there- <laughs> but it's, the, the solution is not for you to never again go to the nameless salad place and get a little chopped up plastic thing. of The, the solution is upstream with manufacturers and with corporate entities that have very successfully helped us become dependent on single-use commodities, uh, primarily plastics, but also other uh, paper and whatnot. So the struggle needs to expand from the curb, where curbside recycling is now common in cities throughout the country, and it has to go backwards. It has to go to the source to say, wait, why is it legal to make so many different plastic polymers that cannot be recycled? Why is it legal to put the costs of the long-term consequences of that onto our shoulders as the consumers and the citizens and the residents of a city like New York? That's a bigger problem and a bigger challenge, but that's where it has to go if we're really going to change the story of waste.
2: Mm -hmm. Wow. So uh, to go back to—let's to reconnect with the journey here mm-hmm. of, of our garbage. What is the final destination for stuff that's not the recyclables? Where does the journey end?
3: But it doesn't end.
2: It never ends?
3: Oh, no. It goes to a final resting place, but is that really final?
2: Well, that is true. That's a good point. Does anything really end?
1: <laughs> where, where, but where is that final resting place?
3: Uh, we export—and again, I, I might be a little bit off on this, but to six different states— for garbage, into nine different states for recyclables, so uh, landfills and waste energy facilities for garbage, and res- MRFs, materials recovery facilities for recyclables.
1: Can I ask a really geeky question? Go. Maybe this is too minute, but I'm having a hard time with this. So back to this um, plastic cup that I have right mm-hmm. here. Your heritage cup. My heritage cup that... I guess we'll not go on my mantle. Um, <laughs> you could decide. To put I to Let's say that for some reason this winds up in a trash can. Okay. It gets crunched up by one of those passing garbage trucks. Yep. It gets taken off to a dump. It gets loaded on maybe a scow, right? It gets trucked off. It might to, be
3: trucked. It might be taken by rail.
1: Okay. Trucked or rail to one of these states oh, that actually, accepts our or, garbage. Or
3: a barge. You're right. Or a barge. Or a barge.
1: It winds up in another state. Yeah. And by this point, it's been kind of like crushed down into some tiny little disc or something, right? Well, it's crunched, yeah. It's crunched. Is it really small? And is it like, can you make me feel at all better about this? Is it going to be tiny, tiny, tiny <laughs> in that
3: landfill? <laughs> no. It's not, it's not science fiction, turn it into a little one-inch cube kind of crushed. It's just smooshed.
1: So it's smooshed. It's going in a landfill with a bunch of other water bottles and a bunch of other crap, basically. Yeah. Mm. And then it's part of this layer cake that is the landfill, but if it doesn't decompose, correct, it just sits there, yeah, next it, to other stuff like it forever.
3: Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. It, so the the organic waste that's surrounding it will decompose depending on the conditions of the landfill. Fresh Kills landfill, which closed in two thousand one after being open for fifty some odd years, even though Robert Moses swore up one side and down the other, it would only be open for three years. <laughs> There, the bottom layers do not decompose because the weight is too much. The the compression is too much. I went to a talk a few years ago, where the archaeologist Bill Rathje, may he rest in peace, he had done core samples of fresh kills, and pulled up a hot dog that you it looked like you could toss it on the grill, but it was from the 1950s. Uh. So. But that's old landfill technology. Contemporary landfill technology is designed for decomposition of the organic material so that it subsides and you pull off the methane and the leachate. You treat the leachate so it's leachate is garbage juice. So then that goes into the surrounding waterways as clean water. The methane is retrieved for energy use. In fact, fresh kills was shot through with a methane retrieval system in the early nineteen eighties, one of the first monumental landfills to have this kind of engineering put in place, and it was a, a global leader in how do you how do you do this? But so contemporary landfill technology even though most people don't want a landfill as a neighbor, it's far less Mm -hmm. horrible than it was in Robert Moses' day.
2: And I think um, one reason that it might be more pleasant is because of the kind of unique transformation that's happening for some of these places. I mean, we have talked about not only the amount of garbage that comes through New York, but how that garbage has sort of scarred the land of, Scarred of your, or sort of, shaped? Or shaped. Shaped. Maybe maybe shaped is the better word for it, especially when we talk about fresh kills. But I would like to I'd just like to just talk about this for a couple minutes. Is this How is this even developed? Where does this idea come from? Is this something that the Department of Sanitation is also involved with? Has this been passed on to another department? Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea of of fresh kills going from a landfill to a park.
3: Well, let me expand your scope here a little bit. Please do, yes. Orchard Beach. Yes. 79th Street Park, much of Riverside Park. 33% of Manhattan below 14th Street and 20% of the larger metropolitan region is all built on landfill. The land on which the original Twin Towers were built was landfilled land. Mm -hmm. And cities all over the world have done this since forever. The Department of Sanitation is not uh, inventing this at all. You can read about this happening in medieval cities in Europe um, and in Asia. So, So, what makes Fresh Kill different? Oh, it's so beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I, I drove
1: through. You can visit parts of it. Parts are open right now. There's a bike path that's open, and there's smaller playgrounds that are open. Go
3: to one of their discovery days. Oh yes, they have free bikes. They have walking tours and kite flying, and they have a, it just it's. I've taken students there, and they are gobsmacked that they're still in New York City. It's like being in uh, rural Iowa, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: <laughs> but you see bulldozers and things. are still at work. So on it took these fifty land, years landfills. to build it. It's going to yes. take
3: fifty years to settle it into its next state. But basically. The city has taken what was a travesty, a deep injustice, ecologically, economically, socially, politically, and they are transforming it into one of the world's premier parklands. In a way that is very sensitive to what's beneath those hills, so it's not ignoring that at all, which is why it takes so long. But the the team doing this are some of probably some of the most visionary people working in New York City right now. Eloise Hirsch is the director of Fresh Kills Administrator, I think is the title, and she has a team of artists and urban planners and just remarkable people turning Fresh Kills into. I'm a little speechless. At how beautiful Fresh Kills is. <laughs> you should buy property adjacent to it though. Because yeah. it's gonna mm-hmm. be fantastic.
1: And we can you can check out the website for Fresh Kills to find out about those discovery days. I was sorry that I missed those. They happen um, last with week with some frequency. That's right. Maggie, to bring you into the conversation here, you we mentioned your position with the foundation for New York Strongest. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that foundation and about your ideas for a museum of sanitation.
4: Sure. The Foundation for New York's Strongest has been around for a couple of years. Um, We're the official nonprofit of the Department of Sanitation, um, aiming to be kind of a vehicle for public-private partnerships. And um, one of our main goals is uh, for museum building. So in our plans for museum building, um, there's kind of two aspects that I think are really important. One is public appreciation and one is public education. Um, as we have talked about, sanitation work is um, very invisible. It's very underappreciated. It's very dangerous. And our men and women do very critical work you know, all day, every day. And it would be great if we could make their lives a little easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and public education could be sort of a component of like, how do we as citizens of New York or visitors to New York, how can we participate? How can we be partners and um, help with that effort a little bit? What I dream about in terms of like cornerstones of a permanent collection, um, I would love to see some kind of tribute to our nine eleven first responders. I think that's a very very important story um, in New York City history, yeah. It, and it doesn't get brought up a lot. It doesn't. We don't get a ton of the appreciation that a lot of the other you know heroes did, and we, and it's usually just sort of like a negative, controversial thing with fresh kills, um, mm-hmm. which
1: I don't think it needs to be. Do you have a place sort of ideally selected for this museum? Not yet. Okay. <laughs>
4: we're exploring a couple of
1: different routes. In For
4: the immediate near term, we're kind of taking a museum without walls approach. So we're exploring different ways that we can partner with different institutions to um, have exhibits. We have um, the What Is Here's Open is out right now. Um, we recently helped out or participated in um, the Transit Museum's Bus Fest, which was a lot of fun. We also participated in the Javits Center Auto Show, which oh. had, I think we um, also had our, we had this mini collection truck that is very adorable, um, which is what we also brought to the Bus Fest. And uh, we also had a mechan- an all-electric mechanical broom that we've been showing off lately.
1: Oh. The mechanical broom again. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, so the museum is already kind of happening in Yeah, it's in happening ways. in some ways.
4: Yeah. Um, and then long-term plan, we... The different models that we could, that we are exploring, is we could try to do sort of a public model like FDNY has done, which would be to sort of repurpose a public space um, that the city owns, or we could try to do private and kind of find some third party mm-hmm. space, which if, if anyone has any that they're willing to <laughs> give us,
1: I am all yours. I mean, it, it, it seems to... like a garage would be perfect, right? Kind of
3: from your <laughs> mouth to God's ears. <laughs> yes. I mean, it
2: would be amazing to have a place where like you could go and see um, old um, white wing. Uniforms and pictures of Dead Horse Bay, but then also, like, this is how everything is processed today. And then another section of, like, well, this is actually how you can make it better and this is actually how we can improve. Yeah. So you're, well, you're, like, you're yeah. reading
4: my mind. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. To, 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 to continue with my permanent collection, I would uh-huh. also love to see, yeah, the public education piece, it's like, how to recycle today, um, something about Colonel Waring and his history. because I think that's a really great, it, it's a very visceral re- understanding of, like, what it is that we do that keeps New Yorkers. Um, healthy, safe, and clean, as we discussed a little right, bit. Right. Because he
2: because he attacked it with such a sort of military fervor that like the images from this are just so very dramatic and the before and afters are striking.
1: Absolutely. You also mentioned the um the exhibit that's currently open. What is here is open, selections from the treasures in the trash collection, uh, which is currently on at the Hunter East Harlem Gallery at one nineteenth and third Avenue through September 14th, 2019. How did that exhibit come to be. What What is the Treasures in Trash collection? Yeah.
4: Um, so Treasures in the Trash is a collection created by um, a retired sand worker named Nelson Molina, who over the course of his 34-year career um, had a habit of picking things out of the garbage that... Masterpieces. He, yeah, masterpieces, <laughs> things that he thought weren't trash.
1: But there's a whole term for it. Mongo. For... <laughs> Thank you. <Yes. laughs>
4: so so Nelson mongoed a bit over his 30-year career and managed to amass um, some... Forty-five thousand items that are currently housed in um in our active sanitation facility in East Harlem. So please, I mean, it's wonderful, but please don't wander into our garage. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, we do do public yes. tours occasionally. Uh-huh. Um, but this exhibit, what is here, is open. Was a way for us to kind of make it a little more available. Um, we partnered with an organization called High Arts. Their executive director Raymond Codrington. This was originally his idea to curate a special exhibit that would be more accessible to the public. And um, he actually hadn't seen the collection at the time when he proposed this to us. We brought him in, and he was floored by it, as many people are. And um, he thought, like, we shouldn't just do a collection of stuff. And he brought on an artist called named Alicia Grione, who curated the exhibit along with Nelson. They had him be a, um, a co-curator. So at the exhibit, we have about 300 items on display with um, seven Artistic submissions from New York City-based artists who, it's sort of a response activity. So they looked at the collection, submitted some artwork that they thought resonated with it, and then Alicia and Nelson curated objects from the collection as a response to the art. So it's sort of a conversation.
1: I guess with one final question, for our listeners, you know, how can they, how can we, how can we help the Department of Sanitation? Is there any advice that you have for New Yorkers when it comes to our relationship with the Sanitation Department?
3: Do you want to take that first? <laughs>
1: from the department's perspective, um,
4: as I mentioned before, your partners in helping us keep the city clean, um, it'd be really, really great as a basic level to just you know follow recycling laws, use public litter baskets correctly, pick up after your dog when they poop, yeah. uh, some basic things like that. Um, in other words, be a
3: decent person. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> um, because there's real safety implications. That's that. very practical, but in from like anthropological standpoint?
3: So I would say, and this is not going to help anyone who's working the truck. However, when you see them working the truck, and I would, I would say don't extend this only to municipal employees, but also those working private trucks. Tell them thank you. We rely on them so heavily, and yet we don't acknowledge them. So even just a simple thanks, it matters. Yeah, I, I would also just add for the litter basket thing, when you see one that's overflowing... Just hold on to your litter. (laughs) Don't add it to the top of the pile. Don't balance it. No. (laughs) No. And there's a whole... Or sit it
2: next to it. You don't think that's a good idea?
3: You know, just put it in your bag, keep it in your pocket, hold it in your hand until you find a place where there's room for it.
1: Well, Maggie, Robin, thank you both very much for joining us today as we talked
2: about New
1: York City and its trash. Yes.
2: And thank you both very much for
1: joining us. Thank you. Thank
4: you. you. Can I give a slight plug? Please check out um, our new website, nycstrongest.org the foundation and you can look for ways to volunteer donate get involved
1: that's great
2: on our website barryboyshistory.com we will have some of the dirtiest photographs i've ever put up on our website no uh pictures of all the things that we've discussed um a couple pictures of the exhibition and more plus we'll link to robin's ted talk and we'll have that edison video from 1903.
1: So check that out at BoweryBoysHistory.com. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. It is because of your generous monthly support that Greg and I are able to devote all of our time to producing The Bowery Boys and Talking Trash. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you will, of course, receive
2: a new episode of the Patreon-only Bowery Boys spinoff show called The Bowery Boys Movie Club, where every so often we tackle a movie with New York City themes, a movie that's filmed in New York or is just uh, set here in some way, and sort of like explore the minutiae of that movie. The episode will be coming out in a couple weeks, and this month we'll be talking Gangs of New York. Martin Scorsese,
1: Leonardo DiCaprio. So that is your assignment, patrons. Watch Gangs of New York and then join us. You can join the fun at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Also, if you're free this weekend or any upcoming weekend, join us in the streets as we work with some of New York's best tour guides with BoweryBoysWalks.com. Uh, We have really great in-depth walks of NoHo in the 19th century, Edith Wharton's New York, the Hidden Histories of Greenwich Village, the World's Fairs of 1939 and 64, and so many others. That's BoweryboysWalks.com. And finally, tickets are on sale for
2: our second annual live Ghost Stories of Old New York show at Joe's Pub. One of the shows, Tom, is already halfway sold out. So when we say But
1: who's who's getting refreshed throughout
2: the day? <laughs> so when we say that like tickets really are going fast, I know that's Halloween, that's in October, but like mm-hmm. uh, People are getting tickets fast, and it's going to be a fabulous show. We
1: have two shows on Sunday the 27th and one on Halloween itself, October 31st. So just go to the website of Joe's Pub and get your tickets today. That's publictheater.org. Thank you so much for joining us on this history of New York City's Sanitation Department.
2: Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.